morning, church. We're going to walk through Romans chapter 6 together. Within the first couple of verses of Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul begins to talk about baptism. Let me give you a simple definition of what baptism is. It's a living picture of Christ transformation. Not a living picture of behavior modification, a living picture of Christ's transformation. I was baptized at the age of 10. I told my parents I wanted to be baptized, so they took me to church. And I walked in that particular day, they showed me the tank, freaked me out because there were flies in the water, which made my OCD react, and I didn't know exactly what to do with that. They gave me a little white robe. So I looked like a little tiny angel as I was walking down into the water. And the pastor took me into the water and said, I now, upon your profession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Actually, he said Holy Ghost, because we're good Baptist people. And he put me under the water and he brought me back out of the water. And when I came back up, I looked like a little drowned angel, you know, with my little white suit on. I don't remember joy. I don't remember massive change. I remember being wet. That's what I remember. And because of that, I just, want, I just want to tell parents something as well. Your child should initiate their own baptism. You should not initiate it for them. They should be speaking out loud if they want to make the request. I went to my parents, and my dad's first question was, Grant, tell me what baptism means. When I was able to unpack that for him, then we were ready to go, and, and, and we walked through that particular event together. But when I look back on my baptism experience, I wish someone would have read Romans chapter 6 to me before I went into the tank. So let's unpack it together. Verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead... Through the glory of the Father that we too may live a new life. When I am baptized publicly, like we're going to do next weekend, when I go under the water, I'm entering into the death that Jesus died for me. When I come up out of the water, I'm embracing fully and entering into the power of his resurrection and fully embracing this new life that Jesus offers. When I get baptized, I'm going public with my belief that Jesus died and that Jesus rose. Romans continues, verse 5, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Underline it, highlight it, underscore it, put a neon band around those words, okay, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So when I am baptized, I'm going public with the belief that Jesus died and that Jesus rose and that Jesus triumphed over sin once and for all and that I am no longer a slave to sin because Jesus has set me free and now I live with Christ in me. Here's my question, church. Have you been baptized? If you're a follower of Jesus, have you been obedient? Now, one of the hesitations that I hear often from people whenever we're getting ready to baptize people kind of goes like this. Here's my fear. If I go public in my declaration of faith and then I mess up, what will people think about me? What will people think about God? What will people think about God and me? Okay? Here's the deal. At some point, you will mess up. 
Welcome to being human, okay? That's common amongst all of us, okay? Baptism does not guarantee a perfect life. Baptism acknowledges that sin no longer rules you. Not because of what you can or cannot do, but because of what Jesus did for you. Okay, in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul begins to specifically and strategically talk about how we, as followers of Jesus, have to be open to something. This is what we're going to talk about today. We have to be open to Jesus rewiring the switch. And Romans 6 just lays this out for us. In this series, we've been asking a question. Why does it seem like our faith comes with an on-off switch? Why do we have those moments when we claim to love Jesus, but our temper just comes unglued? Our mouth runs out of control and we end up paying an unbelievable price. So do the people that we love or surround us. Our sexual urges overcome us. We have a moment of selfishness. We just go unbridled, untamed, and uncensored. And everything seems to go completely wrong. And in that moment, we disengage and we're covered with shame because sin beat us again. We've been talking about what is it that allows this to continue to have power over us? In the very first house that my wife and I bought, we had a light switch that did not work. just didn't work. So I did what any new homeowner does when you have something in your house that doesn't work for the first time. I called my dad, right? So I call Ernie. Ernie knows something about plumbing, about electrical. He's got all that kind of stuff done. He's just like, hey, it's pretty simple. I want you to take the faceplate off of the light switch. I want you to pull it out. Tell me what you see. Well, I see a ground wire. Didn't know it was a ground wire at the time. I see a, there was a black wire and a white wire, and they're just kind of plugged in there, wrapped around stuff in the back. He goes like, okay, it's pretty simple. What you're going to do is you're going to disconnect that light switch, and we're going to replace it. And I'm thinking to myself, this is not a big deal. I mean, how hard can snipping and reconnecting three wires be, right? <laughs> My dad forgot an important piece of information, which is whenever you're working with a light switch, you should turn off the breaker first, okay? I didn't know, so I'm just back there snipping and clipping going that. My dad had enough electrical experience. He would change things out while they were hot all the time. I didn't know. So I start unclipping wires and connecting, and at some point, my fingers create a circuit, that goes up my one arm and down the other arm. It hit me so hard, I could not let go of the wires. So it's like, mm, right? And I learned something. I learned there's power in rewiring the switch. And that's what Paul wants us to talk about. He's going to get very practical. Verse 9. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Let me translate that for you. He's still alive. That's good news. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul uses the word know. It's the first blank in your outline. You need to know this. Be convinced of this reality. Paul says be convinced in your head and in your heart. You need to hold tightly to the biblical conviction that Jesus died and broke the power of sin and death. And it was done so thoroughly and so completely the first time, it never needs to be done again. That's good news. Let me put it to you this way. You couldn't break the power of sin, so Jesus did it for you. That's amazing. That's the power of grace right there. I couldn't do it, you couldn't do it, so Jesus did it for us. Paul says you need to know that. You need to be convinced of that. Even when the world presses back against it, you need to know that. In verse 11, in the same way, 
count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's that next blank. Count yourself. Okay? Some of your Bible translations will use an older word that we don't use very often anymore. The word is reckon. Okay? So don't think duck dynasty. You know, well, I reckon. Don't think that. Okay? Think mathematically. This word says you need to count yourself. You need to calculate this reality in your life. Let me put it in modern terminology. Church, do the math. Just do the math. Hold this conviction deep within yourself. Count yourself dead to sin. It has no power over you and you are alive to God because of Jesus. So because sin is now no longer ruling in your life, this is what's happening. Christ is now transforming you more and more into his image every single day, more and more. He's developing your family resemblance with Jesus. So you look more and more like him every moment. You're becoming more and more a reflection of Jesus in your life. Scripture puts it so many different ways. Less of me and more of him more dying to myself and more living like Jesus. Count yourself dead to sin. Paul goes on and now he gets really, really practical. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather... Offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. So the switch is in the full off position. Let's get practical. This is my hand. I can use it for a variety of actions. If I want to, if you look at me funny, I can use this hand to punch you in the throat. That would be evil, but I could if I wanted to. I could use this hand to sign a fraudulent check and defraud my employee if I wanted to. I could click my way to pornography with this hand. And some of you have already done that today. Let's be real. I could point the finger of judgment with this hand. I can have a need, a legitimate need, be put right in front of me by God Almighty himself. And I could dismiss it with a wave of this hand. I can dismiss a need. I can send a nonverbal message from my car to your car with one piece of this hand. Are you tracking with me, 830? All right? I can see something right in front of me and abdicate responsibility by throwing up this hand. Even though the Bible says to him that knows to do good and doesn't do it, that's sin. Can I ask you a question? What's your hand been up to? Over the last seven days. I can continue to do that. In the full off position. Or I can die to sin. And do something else with this hand. I can give a cup of cold water. In the name of Jesus with this hand. I can comfort somebody. I can come along of somebody. Who's really really hurting. And I can take them by the hand. And say can we actually talk to the one the one man who can actually do something about your issue right now. Can we talk to Jesus together? I can reach out with this hand into my neighborhood on Halloween with a glow station. I mean, I can actually do that. I can bring two people that are feuding together with this hand if I choose to. I can give an offering with this hand. It's the same hand, 
what's the difference between the first set of actions and the second set of actions? Let me give it to you in one word. Ownership. It's ownership. If Christ is in me, as scripture says, then I don't own this hand, Jesus does. Okay, if Christ is in me and Jesus has ownership of this hand, which actions that I describe would you find his hand doing? I'm not asking you what you found your hand doing this past week. If this hand belongs to Jesus, which set of actions that I described would you find the hand of Jesus doing? If I'm in Christ and Christ is in me, who controls the hand? It's not me. Paul's saying you need to relinquish ownership of yourself. I use this word in your outline. The word is yield. Yield. Paul says don't let sin reign in your mortal body. And then he actually gives us another step. He says I want you to stop offering yourself up to sin. And instead offer yourself up to God. Here's the problem with so many of us. We just keep offering ourselves up to sin. We just keep offering ourselves up again. So I got permission this week. I'm talking with a young college guy. Just having coffee. And he shares a story that I just hear way too common. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm here in town with my girlfriend. And we keep falling into sexual sin over and over and over again. And he's broken hearted about that. So I just start asking some questions. I asked, I said, so how does it happen? He goes, you know, it's, this, it's the same cycle every Friday night. We start off with really good intentions. In fact, we actually say it to each other. We're, we're not going to slip backwards today. And then we go out for the evening. And then we drive back to her place. And then we sit in the driveway and make out. And don't pretend you're a bunch of self-righteous people that never made out with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, all right? I know better, 830, all right? He says, and then, and then we go inside and, 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 you know, and sometimes we'll even stop and pray that God will help us and give us strength to not sin on that particular night. And then we hang out on the sofa and then we watch a movie and then we make up some more and then we go too far and then we feel bad and then we promise it's never going to happen again. He was talking about last week how we talked about the cycle, sin and repent, sin and repent, sin and repent. He asked me a question, he said, well, what do I do? I said, here's the problem. You keep offering yourself up. You keep offering yourself up. You keep exposing yourself to opportunities to sin. I said, so let's get really, really practical. I said, okay, if the car, if your car is a doorway to sin, get a bike. Get a bike with a seat that doesn't recline. You never get to go in a car again for the rest of your life until you're married. That's how it's going to have to work for you. If her apartment is a doorway, don't go there. If the sofa is a doorway, stand up. Don't sit down. Don't recline. Whatever it is, it sounds crazy. But here's the deal. You keep offering yourself because you've forgotten who is in you. And you've most certainly forgotten who is in her. And I said, it's not about boundaries. It's not just a simple equation about boundaries. I said, this is what you need to know. What is happening inside of you, we're going to call that something. It's sin. Just straight up. I know it's not politically correct. I don't care. It's sin. And you need to know this. Jesus died for it, so you need to die to it. It's not in your outline, but I think it's worth writing down. Jesus died for it, so you need to die to it. Stop making the offer and instead offer yourself up to God and use your body as an instrument for God's glory. So you need to yield, brother. 
Paul goes on, verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under the law, but under grace. For years, I believed that battling against sin was hopeless. I believed that at some level, the sins that kept besetting me over and over and over again had had just rendered me completely hopeless. I was shackled. And I felt myself chained to the same stuff over and over and over again. And I'd go to church every weekend and repent again and again and again and again and again. And I could not figure out for the life of me why I couldn't beat it. And I just gave you a clue there. The truth is, I have no power to beat sin. I have no power in and of myself. I'm powerless. But what I forgot was he was powerful. And if Paul says, if he is in me, then what appeared to have power over me was subject not to my strength, but to the power and the strength of Almighty God. So I begin to to kind of rethink this whole thing. What if this sin doesn't actually rule me anymore? What if Jesus broke it once and for all? And what if, if I stopped trying to fight against it and just allowed his strength inside of me to beat it? What if, it, it would, what if the powerful nature of God Almighty himself came against what was binding me and it's just as simple as... This is nothing to him. The Bible says he defeated it once and for all. Can I get an amen from somebody at the 830 service? Once and for all, you are no longer a slave or shackled to this. I don't care how powerful they look. Jesus beat it once and for all. I couldn't break free, but he can break me free. I can't live that way on my own. The power of sin was broken and I was set free. Verse 15, what then? Paul says. Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you remember last week? Paul says, don't get caught up in this kind of thinking. That because God's a gracious, benevolent God, that you're just going to keep sinning and sinning and sinning. So you give an opportunity for God to do what he wants to do more than anything. It doesn't work that way. Paul said, and you remember his response, a little Greek phrase. Meganoita. May it never, ever May we never cheapen God's grace by thinking, I can go out and sin, do whatever I want to. God will forgive me. Verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Can we stop there just for a second? Every single person in this room is a slave to somebody. You're either a slave to a kind, benevolent, gracious master who wants nothing more than for you to live life and to live it to the full, or you are a slave to a cruel, lying taskmaster who will spend your entire life convincing you that the stuff you're chasing will fill that hole in your soul and you will get to the end of eternity and find out that the reason the Bible calls him the king of liars is because that's what he does. Everybody in the room is a slave to somebody. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, You have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. 
Paul wants us to get this so bad. You need to know who you are. You need to count yourself dead to sin. You need to yield your body no longer as an instrument of evil, but as an instrument of God's righteousness. And Paul says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to embrace your freedom in Christ. Embrace it. I want you to offer yourself up to him as this benevolent, kind, gracious master. There's a famous story told of how Abraham Lincoln, as a young man, stumbled into the center of a city and found himself in the middle of a human atrocity. Abraham Lincoln, before he was the president, walking through the city, ended up in the middle of a human slave auction. Disgusted by what he saw, the sale of human beings as property, Abraham Lincoln's heart broke, and not knowing what else to do, he actually stepped into the middle of the auction, and he began to bid on a young woman. I don't even like using those words when it comes to human beings. He purchased her. Went over to a side desk, filled out the paperwork to solidify his purchase. It's still, it's disgusting, isn't it? The young woman, believing that he was just another slave owner in a string of slave owners, had absolutely no understanding of what freedom was because she'd spent her entire life in shackles. And when Abraham Lincoln asked for the key and undid the shackles around her wrists and her ankles, she didn't know what to do. He kept trying to explain to her, you're free. I relinquish your own, I, you're free. You can imagine, if you, if you had no concept of that, how difficult it would be when you were suddenly confronted with the beauty of freedom. Abraham Lincoln kept saying, you're free, you're free. And finally, she said, if I'm free, can I go where I want to go? He said, yes, you can go wherever you want to go. She said, if I'm free, can I, can I do whatever I want to do? He said, yes, you can do whatever you want to do. She said, if I'm free, can I choose whatever I want to choose? And he said, yes, you can. She paused and said, then I choose to go with you. Jesus stands in front of every single one of us today and says, I set you free. And now you have freedom. When I was 18 years old, I used that freedom to say, if I'm free, then I choose to go with you. My prayer is that no person from this room will leave today without looking Jesus in the face and say, I fully understand what you have set me free from. And now I will exercise that freedom to serve, love, and follow you for the rest of my life. It's the beauty of who he is. Verse 18. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves 
to righteousness. It's a big fancy word. It simply means right standing before God. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What, this is a good question. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? I love that question. What were the things from your former life that you thought were so cool and fulfilled you so much? What of those things now create a memory for you that Satan uses to condemn you? I mean, I look back on my life before Jesus, the places I went, the decisions I made, the things that I did, and at the time they seemed so unbelievably fulfilling. Now, in light of the fact that Christ has set me free, they just seem, they seem so infinitely stupid. And I know that's a strong word, but there's no fulfillment. I don't look back and go, wow, that was awesome. I look back and go, what was I thinking? What was I thinking at that time? Well, let me ask you that question. What are the things from your former life that you look back on now and, and, and it, it's just, how, how could I even have given, what are those things that now create shame inside of you? Those things that, that Christ died for. And Paul just, he, I mean, he just hits the nail on the head at the end of verse 21. He goes, those things result in death. That's the payoff for that stuff. Results in death. Verse 22, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. This is Paul's plea. Live as one who's dead to sin and alive to Christ. Live life in the way God intended. Let me quote another scripture. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. You have no ownership. You can't break sin on your own. But Jesus is more than strong to be able to break that over you. And in verse 23, he says the most powerful verse in all of Romans chapter 6. If you learned John 3.16 as a kid first, you probably learned Romans either 6.23 or 3.23 is the next one in the, in the chain, right? Here it comes. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's such a good verse. Let's read it again. All right? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I've been thinking so much about this the last couple of weeks. Let me share the question that I've been running around inside of my brain. What's your paycheck? Not what's your salary. Not what's your gross versus your net. Not what are your benefits. What's your pay check the bible says the paycheck that i deserve is death the wages of sin is death all of my sinful decisions that's what the reward should be i deserve death for my sin the beauty of romans 6 says that jesus died once for all So I no longer need to die that death to sin. I just need to die to my sinful condition. And not just die, but also live as God intended me to live. Thanks be to God 
for his indescribable gift. Let me just throw this in there because I think it's important, right? Anytime you talk about a gift and you get it for free, I don't know how your parents raised you, but my parents raised me to say, thank you. When you get something, right, somebody just gives you a gift, the proper response is thank you. I mean, how can we not be so grateful for the fact that Christ wants full ownership of us, that he wants to reside inside of us, Christ in us, that he so desperately loves us that he wants to wire the switch inside of our soul in the full-on position so that this is not even an option. How amazing is it that Christ wants to rewire that circuit so it's just stuck like that? Always, perpetually. And that I have an opportunity every single day to offer up the members of my body either as instruments of the good stuff for God or the bad stuff which would be me. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with all of this? Well, here's a suggestion. Baptism would be a great next step for those of you who have not been baptized. And I know it's going to create some, some sacrifice for you, but we have a baptism class after the last service. It's going to start at 1245 on the second floor upstairs. Can I be as subtle as possible? If you have not been baptized, get your backside into that class. And next weekend, get your backside into that. That was kind of gross, but anyway, get in the tank. And we will celebrate your obedience as you offer yourself up to the God who loves you. Baptism would be a great next step. Can I tell you something, 830? If you're thinking right now, I really need to do that, can I promise you what's going to happen for the rest of the morning? The devil is going to do every single thing he can to distract you. So you're going to get to about 2 o'clock this afternoon and go, when was that thing I was supposed to go to? You need to offer yourself up right now. Die to yourself. Die to your schedule. And say, I'm going to do this because Jesus said I should. What's another next step? How about recognizing all week that your hands, your mouth, and your brain. Can you do me a favor right now? Can you just look at your hands? Seriously, hold them up and look at them. Just stare at them just for a second. What are you going to use them for this week? Instruments of evil or instruments of righteousness? Comes down to a question of ownership, right? Who do they belong to? What would the hands of Jesus be doing this coming week? Your mouth, your brain, they're not yours. So all week long, offer them to God and allow Him to control what is rightfully his scripture says it. Know this. Count yourself. Yield your body. Embrace fully. Live completely. And be thankful. Romans 6. Good stuff. So here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to respond to God today. I'm going to invite Mike and the band to come back and join We'll give back to God our tithes and our offerings in the last song. This is a song completely designed to for us to respond. So I'm going to ask you, would you stand with me, please?
because we are going to sing and then we're going to read out loud as part of this the powerful words of Scripture. And I'm going to invite you to offer yourself up during this moment of worship. To yield yourself fully and completely to the power of the Holy Spirit this week. That we would not just be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word. That we would walk out of here wrapped in the truth of Romans 6. And that we would literally be salt and light this week in a world that so desperately needs it. If you have not accepted Christ today as your personal Savior after the service, some of us are going to be standing up here at the front. We would love to take you by the hand and walk with you into the most amazing relationship that you could ever experience. A relationship with Jesus who came to break the power of sin over you so that once and for all you could be set free. You no longer need to be a slave to sin. He who has been set free, who the Son has set free, is free indeed. Let's worship together.